Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. We are going to tune in today to the Senate's hearing on foster children in the courts. This is hosted by the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, chaired by John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. It's about the shortfalls in the foster care system, specifically in the courts. Let's tune in. The Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law will come to order. Eight months ago, the subcommittee opened a bipartisan inquiry into the safety of children in foster care because protecting America's most vulnerable children from abuse and neglect is a moral imperative. We're talking about the most vulnerable children in our nation and the most vulnerable children in the state of Georgia. Orphaned children, children who have faced unimaginable abuse, children who have been trafficked. For these children in our state, the Georgia Division of Family and Children's Services, DFACS, is meant to be a sanctuary. For years, watchdogs, oversight bodies, and advocates have been sounding the alarm about alleged systemic failures at DFACS, which receives hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding each year, and which is subject to federal child welfare standards. According to the Georgia Office of a Child Advocate, or OCA, in 2021, DFACS received reports of significant failures directly from several local child advocacy centers and from the statewide organization Child Advocacy Centers of Georgia. OCA characterized these reports as evidence of, quote, systemic threats to children who are victims of physical and sexual abuse. The following year, in 2022, OCA issued a report outlining 15 breakdowns within DFACS and described them as, quote, systemic. OCA reported that in all cases they reviewed to produce their investigation, quote, DFACS failed to take adequate steps to respond to allegations of physical and sexual abuse, end quote, and that OCA itself encountered those same systemic failures, quote, consistently throughout the state through OCA's day-to-day -day investigative work. In response to that OCA investigation, Georgia DFACS denied OCA's findings. OCA stood by its report. The allegations of widespread failures that leave Georgia foster children vulnerable to abuse and neglect demand investigation. And Georgia, as a case study informing our subcommittee's inquiry, will yield crucial insights about threats to the health and safety of foster children nationwide. To date, the subcommittee has interviewed over 100 witnesses and has reviewed thousands of pages of records. Last week at our first public hearing, a former foster youth, a Georgia mother whose child was murdered after being placed with unfit caregivers, and experts and practitioners in child welfare law and policy provided courageous and eye-opening testimony to the subcommittee. 
At that hearing, we also made public that according to a DFACS internal audit from spring of this year, DFACS was failing in 84% of audited cases to, quote, make concerted efforts to assess and address risks and safety concerns to children in their own homes or in foster care, which is a federal child protection benchmark. On Friday, we released new analysis conducted at the subcommittee's request by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which found that 1,790 children in DFACS care were reported missing from 2018 to 2022. This investigation continues today with the second public hearing, this time focused on Georgia's foster children in the courts. And today, three experienced judges will testify before the subcommittee. We are grateful for your testimony today, as you are uniquely qualified to provide authoritative, firsthand testimony about the operation of Georgia's foster care system. I will now introduce our witnesses. First, the Honorable Carolyn Altman. Judge Altman is a juvenile court judge at Paulding County Juvenile Court in Dallas, Georgia. Next, we'll hear from the Honorable Young I. Sims. Judge Sims is a juvenile court judge at Gwinnett County Juvenile Court, Division I, in Lawrenceville, Georgia. And we'll hear from the Honorable Winona Clark Belton. Judge Belton recently retired as a juvenile court judge at Fulton County Juvenile Court in Atlanta, Georgia. Before their opening statements, we will swear in the witnesses. So if you would all please rise and raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give before the subcommittee is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Thank you. Let the record show that the witness has answered in the affirmative. You may take your seats. We are tuned in to the Senate hearing on foster children and the courts held by the Senate Committee on the Judiciary Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law. What you saw there was Senator John Ossoff of Georgia discussing the importance of this hearing and the crisis that this nation is in in regards to foster care. He, start, he was talking about you know, foster children in general. You know, these are children that come from abusive homes, um, often homes of substance abuse. They have these traumatic backgrounds. Um, it's not a, a healthy upbringing in many cases. and. It lands them in the court system, which sometimes puts them into the foster care system. They are, as John Ossoff was saying, they are some of the most vulnerable children in our society. And here we are hearing, and we will hear testimony, and, we, and this Senate uh, subcommittee has heard testimony on just how vulnerable they are and how, how um, they face abuse and trafficking and other horrors. That's right. You know, these children, they, they, they leave their homes their, where their parents are supposed to be taking care of them. And in many cases, like I was saying, you know, they're leaving abusive homes. And then they enter um, the, the legal system and where they meet a sea of officials who then become their caretakers. You know, judges, lawyers, cops, therapists, uh, counselors, social workers, foster home leaders, of course. And so what really is going wrong here? Because with so many people, you would think that that could form some kind of coherent replacement for a family, I suppose. But as Asif was saying, DFACS is meant to be a sanctuary, right? The, 
the Division of Family and Children's Services is meant to be a sanctuary for these children. That, that's the initial purpose. But what we're seeing is years of alleged systemic failures. That's right. He was also talking about how, again, these are um, the most vulnerable children. And um, in the previous hearing by this committee uh, last Wednesday, they talked about how you know, human traffickers, child sex traffickers, go after the most vulnerable children. And in fact, uh, many of the children that have been rescued from the child sex slavery industry, um, about 60% of them ha were at one point in the foster care system. Shocking. That's according to the FBI. Wow, shocking a statistic there. And what's also shocking is the response, as Senator Ossoff pointed out, um, defects actually denied some of the allegations that were put forth in these years of, of allegations that have been put forth against uh, the agency, instead of really tackling them. So that's why, obviously, this Senate hearing is intended to really drill down into this and cut through any of those denials. And it's worth just considering for a moment, you know, why these problems could be happening in the first place. Um, you know, these uh, social care systems, these this foster care system, like so many social worker um, industries, are um, you know, the, the social care workers are are spread really thin in many cases, and yeah. they're not paid as well as say a, a Wall Street banker by any means, and. You know, they, they're oftentimes overloaded with work, with cases, um, and, you know, it's, emotion, it's, a, it's sort of emotionally draining work in the first place. And not making excuses, but it does speak to the state of this foster care system in general and, and what might explain some of the problems we're seeing. And so we do look forward to hearing from the um, witness testimony from the court judges who will be speaking later today. But next, our break. Welcome back. We are tuned in to the Senate hearing on foster children in the courts. It's held by the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, chaired by the, the presided over by John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. Basically, this hearing deals with the shortfalls in the foster care system, and it, it relies on the testimony of judges in the juvenile court system who have a unique and rich, deep understanding of um, the foster care system because they're presiding over the cases that lead to children entering the foster care system. So let's tune into the hearing. And now, Judge Altman, we will please hear your opening statement. Thank you, and good morning, Senator Ossoff. I appreciate this opportunity to share about the work and the people that I care so deeply about. I've been a juvenile court judge for five years, and the 10 years before that, I spent also in juvenile court representing parents and children and serving as a guardian ad litem. I'm a certified child welfare law specialist, and I consider myself a dedicated career professional in child welfare. People sometimes ask me what it's like to be a judge, and particularly a juvenile court judge. Even after five years, I struggle or hesitate to find the right answer or the best answer because it is both an immense privilege and a heavy burden. It's a privilege to bear witness 
to the incredible transformations we see in children and families, to see their healing, their restoration, and to get to know young people who are funny and creative, who are hurting and are deeply thoughtful. It's a privilege to work alongside co-laborers in this field, dedicated, caring, attorneys, CASAs, defects case managers, and a host of others. The people are absolutely the best part of this work. It's also a heavy burden to know that the decisions I make will forever change a child's life and alter a family's future. Because if the information is incomplete, inaccurate, if the system gets it wrong, if the decision that I render is wrong, the consequences are incredibly real. It was hard to listen to Ms. Aldridge last Wednesday and to know that her story isn't an isolated one. Brooklyn's death is tragic, but worse, it was preventable. And you've probably know by now that statewide, our foster care population is lower than it was a few years ago. At our most, we were at 15,000 and we're currently around 11,000. And it sounds like a really good thing to have fewer children in care, but I'm increasingly concerned that we're missing children who need to be in care, and the ones who are may not be receiving their care, services, and support that they need to really be successful. I've seen this trend unfold in three different ways. The first is an overuse and sometimes misuse of a safety resource plan. And what will happen is DFAC's response to an emergency situation creates a safety plan, and it's a short-term fix. But then they may not circle back, fully address the problem, and ensure that the child is properly being cared for. And the biggest danger is that children could go from the frying pan into the fire, and they could be left with people who may not be safe. They're not screened or vetted or approved by defects. There's no criminal background checks, no drug screens, certainly no extensive training as a qualified foster parent. And at worst, the child could be just as unsafe with the new caregiver as they were before. This is also problematic because defects will come in and rearrange the family with this out-of-home placement of the child and then could and sometimes does administratively close the case, which means no services to the parent, no services to the child, and it leaves that safety resource caregiver without any help or legal ability to care for this child. And at times, the caregiver has called DFACS and said, I need help taking care of this child. And DFACS may say, your case is closed, there's nothing we can do. And in these situations, there's no court involvement, no judicial oversight, no attorneys, no due process, and no clear path for what the parent is supposed to do to get their child returned, and also how to address the needs of the child. A second area of concern is our high mental health special needs children. And these are usually teenagers who have extreme or elevated emotional, behavioral, mental health needs that cannot be met in the home, and we have exhausted and frustrated parents who are at their wit's end. And these children are highly vulnerable, and they need the most help. They are often special needs kids, and DFACS is actively resisting these children coming into care. I attended a meeting in August this year with about 30 other judges and DFACS leadership. DFACS Commissioner Bro said that DFACS was not set up to be caregivers for these children and she asked judges to consider detaining the children 
locking them up in a juvenile detention center for a few days so that DFACS could maybe find a placement for them. As judges, we do not lock up children, especially special needs children, because we cannot find a place for them. A third way that I've observed that our foster care population is decreasing is through an increase in family preservation cases. And these are instances where custody of the child is placed directly with a relative rather than with defects. Now, placing a child with a relative is a good thing. But the problem is, is that the children and the caregivers are not getting all of the services and benefits that they would be entitled to if that child was in the legal custody of DFACS. The children aren't eligible for 4E or 4B federal dollars. They're not eligible for health insurance, as our foster kids are. They're not eligible for daycare. And the family caring for this child doesn't receive a foster care per diem and isn't eligible to receive the ongoing subsidy if that placement then becomes permanent. And so rather than giving our children, the families, and the relatives the best, the services and the benefits that they would otherwise be eligible for, DFACS will do a minimum and keep the foster care numbers down. Thank you. You're listening to and watching the Senate hearing on foster children and the courts held by the Senate Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law, chaired by Senator John Ossoff. We just heard from Judge Altman, the Honorable Carolyn Altman, juvenile court judge in Paulding County Juvenile Court in Georgia. And she spoke to the immense privilege and heavy burden of this task of her role. But she also pointed out the, the dedication and the hard work and the care of all the people involved in this foster care system and um, all of the heart that's put into this and lamented the tragic and what she called preventable um, abuses that we do see happening within the system. She talked about her burden as a juvenile court judge, you know, she's providing over these cases where, you know, children are coming from abusive homes, um, oftentimes with substance abuse problems. Um, they can be physically, emotionally, or even sexually abused in some cases, as Senator Marsha Blackburn was saying uh, the last hearing on Wednesday. And um, in, in the worst case scenarios, these children can actually become the targets of child sex traffickers. And yeah, she was just saying that, um, you know, it, 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 her decisions can change a child's life yeah. um, and they can alter the, the course of a family's future. And being in such close con contact with all of these conflicts, she pointed to uh, two major areas so far of her concern regarding what she has seen. One of them was um, the information that she gets and um, the potential misuse or the, uh, the risk to, of making the wrong decisions that could influence a child's life in really terrible ways based on getting the wrong information. Uh, that was one thing that she pointed to. Another was? She was, she was talking, or you know, just to kind of zoom out for a moment, you know, the root causes, looking at the root causes of the foster care system, um, you know, Oftentimes, these, these, the foster care system is, is staffed by social workers, right? And um, they're not paid as well as other professions. Um, and they're also given um, heavy workloads relative to the number of caseworkers there are. And so, so these people um, are kind of spread thin, and they can't exactly administer 
the type of care that we would hope they could. Uh, unfortunately, not making excuses here, but. But it does provide some kind of explanation in a way or at least context for what's going on here, especially in regards to one of the judge's main complaints or warnings, which was about the misuse or overuse of the safety resource plan. So she called that a short-term fix. It looks like, uh, according to the judge, that what's happening is a lot of these kids get given short-term safety plans that then don't have a follow-up to look at the long-term safety of a child um, and potentially puts them, this child, these children, uh, in direct contact with adults who may actually be an endangerment to them because they have not been given the proper screening, these new foster parents, or the proper training um, required to properly take care of these children. She also talked about the most vulnerable. We know we're talking about how uh, children are vulnerable to begin with. Children in the foster care system are some of the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable of the children in the foster care system are those with high mental health needs. Oftentimes, these are uh, people with developmental disabilities. And she just spoke about how you know, these people are um, absolutely vulnerable, um, can barely speak for themselves in many cases, literally. We will have more on this hearing after the break. For staying with us. We are watching the Senate hearing on foster children in the courts that's hosted by the Senate Committee on the Judiciary and presided over by Congressman John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia. The hearing really deals with the shortfalls in the foster care system, which what we're learning about, at least in Georgia, are um, quite shocking. And you'll see once we turn back into the hearing. Um, we're hearing from judges. They're the witnesses today. And they preside over these cases and have rich insight into the foster care system and all the problems with it. Because you know, if a child, um, you know, goes through some problems in the system, they the 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 judge might actually hear um, about it at their at you know in the courthouse. So let's tune back into the hearing. Judge Sims, it's now time for your opening testimony. Good morning, Senator Ossoff. Some people are surprised when I say this, but my foremost ambition as a juvenile court judge is to work towards making my role unnecessary. It's a testament to a deeper, more profound goal, to work in a child welfare system where the safety and well-being of our children is paramount and the need for juvenile court intervention is minimal. My name is Young I Sims, and I proudly serve as a juvenile court judge in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Before I continue with my statement, I want to emphasize that I am here in my personal capacity. The views I express are my own and do not represent the views of any other judges, county officials, or any board, commission, or council on which I serve. Gwinnett County sits just outside of Atlanta and is celebrated for and often considered one of the most diverse counties in the entire state. It proudly oversees Georgia's largest school system, which in turn bears the responsibility for the state's highest number of at-risk children. On any given day, there are roughly 350 children in foster care from Gwinnett County. Sadly, we are failing too many of them. What I have seen develop in my time on the bench is a culture of child protection by the numbers. Cases triaged to boost statistics and then closed prematurely in misleading triumph. 
It's widely known that DFACS has been under immense pressure to address what has been a series of public relations crises. What I have seen is that pressure leading to the neglect or deliberate avoidance of the most complex and heart-wrenching cases. In the end, we have a false sense of confidence in the effectiveness of our system, but the problems suffered by children and families still persist. Imagine a case where a mother overdoses on fentanyl three times, and each time it was her autistic teenager who discovered her unconscious. DFAX's own notes indicate a safety threat and impending danger for the child, but still, the agency seeks no court intervention, which, if brought to court, the court would have the authority to order substance abuse treatment for the parent. Rather than implementing any services, DFAX is even considering closing the case. Now imagine mother fatally overdoses the fourth time. While the grandparents are literally standing over the body of their dead daughter and DFACS having provided no services to the family the entire time, they recommend that the grandparents file a private dependency case, conveniently absolving DFACS from any further involvement at all. This is not something I have to imagine. This is something I have received sworn testimony on. And if that situation is not shocking enough, Imagine DFAC's executive leadership suggests to a room full of juvenile court judges that we prolong a child's time in jail so DFAC's can have more time to find a foster placement. Again, this is not something I have to imagine, as I and many other judges shockingly heard it with our own ears. To understand the depth of the crisis, we must first acknowledge its magnitude. State agencies such as DFAC's are responsible for the care of countless children who are often victims of abuse, neglect, and instability. I acknowledge that this is an extremely difficult and sobering duty. But I also acknowledge that our current system fails the many dedicated individuals on DFAX's front line, who I have had the privilege of knowing, who work tirelessly despite the overwhelming caseloads, misallocation of resources, and a culture that seemingly prioritizes metrics over safety, statistics over children. With those challenges unfairly placed upon caseworkers, what I have personally observed in my courtroom is an increasing gap in service provision and a rise in inadequate information presented to the court, including the inability to answer the most basic of questions, such as, where did DFACS place the child? On the state level, I see our child-serving agencies creating le legislation to circumvent their responsibilities and shifting blame onto other agencies when confronted with their own failures to ensure the safety and well-being of our children. I am acutely aware that I am critiquing a child welfare system in which I myself play a vital role. Consequently, during my tenure on the bench, I have deliberately and proactively welcomed external scrutiny from both state and national stakeholders to evaluate my county's data and procedures, particularly concerning child welfare. We've asked critical questions of ourselves. How many children are entering the foster care system? How long do they remain there? Are we fully utilizing all community resources before resorting to foster care placement? By nurturing open lines of communication and embracing constructive feedback, my county has, over the last three years, restructured our juvenile court, introduced new programs, and most significantly, continues to leverage all available resources to enhance the training of those who work in child welfare. These endeavors have propelled our court towards the goals of enhancing meaningful court hearings, adopting trauma-informed practices, and most importantly, has brought together local stakeholders for collaboration on tangible, measurable objectives. It's important to underscore that these practices and results shouldn't be limited to the judiciary alone. They can and should be replicated across all child welfare agencies and stakeholders. 
it is imperative that we openly confront the areas of our system needing improvement. Accountability on all levels should be the driving force behind the much needed comprehensive reform. I will close the statement the way I started. To render my role unnecessary, I commit and urge all of us to commit to reshaping the child welfare system so that our children's welfare and safety takes priority and the need for juvenile court intervention becomes the exception, not the rule. You're watching the Senate hearing on foster children and the courts held by the Senate Committee on the Judiciary's Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law chaired by Senator John Ossoff. We just heard from Judge Nanai Sims, the Honorable Nanai Sims, uh, juvenile court judge from Gwinnett County. And uh, she was speaking a lot about one of her main concerns being what she called child protection by the numbers, saying that due to uh, overload of workload and things like that, um, she's concerned that a lot of things are falling through the cracks. And that goes back to what I was saying before about uh, overworked social workers who, again, are, are working in a, in a field where they're seeing all kinds of children coming from abusive homes, um, coming from situations with substance abuse. You know, um, they just absolutely, uh, what is it, demoralized, mm -hmm. that's the word, and spread so thin. And yet the agencies, the, uh, the judge was saying, um, you know, have been playing a, she said, a public relations game in a way saying that um, that's led to neglect and also the people generally thinking that everything's fine within the foster care system and having what she called a false sense of confidence in the system. That's so. right. She was talking about, you know, this, this mother that overdosed three times mm -hmm. on fentanyl and was discovered by her autistic child and the fourth time she overdosed um, and died, um, you know, the court sought no intervention in the, in, in, in the child's life and, um, you know, DFACS didn't take any action. The DFACS, the um, Child Support Services Department in Georgia, didn't take any action there. And also remarkable on that n story is the fact that they weren't involved at all as per this judge saying that they weren't involved at all before this mother died um, of these issues and she's saying that not only is is that kind of thing happening but they're they're closing cases too early as one of the issues systemically found within this um, agency closing cases too early and uh, trying to absolve themselves of responsibility she was saying um, and uh, doing things like suggesting that children have more time in juvenile juvenile jail just to give the agency more time to find somewhere to place them. So you can see that it's a, they're in a tight spot because if, if there were easy access to foster care parents, uh, this wouldn't be happening. But it is happening and it's, it's putting a lot of people in pain. And it's such an important system too. You know, it goes back to the 1800s with the slums in New York City with this massive immigrant influx from Europe. You know, you had tens of thousands of homeless children on the streets then, and they were um, actually shipped to homes, uh, in foster homes, in again, in the early late 1800s. Um, and that evolved into what became known as the Children's Aid Society, which really set the precedent for fostering children, um, became the basis for the Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997. And 
you know, since 1999, basically between 1999 and 2019, over 9 million children have been placed in foster homes. So this is an enormous system with a lot of children in its care. And these types of problems, they're saying, are systemic and um, definitely you know, need to be addressed. All right, we're going to go into a commercial break, but we will have more on the Senate hearing on foster children in the courts after the break. Thank you for staying with us. We are tuned into the Senate hearing on foster children in the courts, hosted by the Senate Committee on the Judiciary. And the uh, hearing is presided over by uh, Senator John Ossoff, Democrat from Georgia. And basically, this hearing deals with the uh, foster care system. It's been going on for months now. Well, the a series of hearings, the series of hearings of which this is a part, has been going on for months now. And yeah, it, it deals with the shortfalls in the foster care system. And we're looking at witnesses uh, who are also um, judges from the juvenile court system. So they they really see and preside over these cases intimately. They know the details of them and they can they can advise the Senate about uh, what kind of legislation needs to be passed to address some really problematic um, systemic problems of the foster care system in our country. So let's tune in. Thank you, Judge Sims. Judge Belton, you may now make your opening statement. Good morning. I am Judge Winona Clark Belton. I am a retired juvenile court judge. I retired nearly three weeks ago after having served for 10 years as a judge for the juvenile court of Fulton County, Atlanta Judicial Circuit where among other things, I served as the judicial lead for the Court Improvement Initiative, part of a multi-circuit initiative, which is coordinated with the state's Court Improvement Program, which is designed to engage and educate child welfare professionals, partners, and stakeholders about best practices for more favorable outcomes. I earned my law degree from the Georgia State University College of Law and my undergraduate degree from the University of Maryland College Park. I was recently elected to serve additional three-year term as a board member of the National Council of the Juvenile and Family Court Judges, one of the largest and oldest judicial membership organizations in the nation, which serves an estimated 30,000 professionals in the juvenile and family justice system and provides resources, knowledge, and training to improve the lives of children and families seeking justice. I am a child welfare law specialist and have been certified for over 10 years through the National Association of Counsel for Children. I also serve as a cabinet member of Get Georgia Reading. I am a member of the Children and the Courts Committee of the State Bar of Georgia. I am also a life member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, whose motto is service to all mankind. My affiliations, I share my affiliations to demonstrate my commitment to children and families. However, my remarks today are solely based upon my own experiences and must not be attributed to any organization of which I am a member. Prior to my service on the bench, I was privileged to have served in a number of roles which prepared me to engage in child welfare work. 
I am a former foster parent and began my service in juvenile court as a CASA volunteer. Over the last 23 years in Fulton County, I have served as a judicial staff attorney, represented the Department of Family and Children's Services, and served as the clerk of juvenile court. I have represented indigent children in delinquency matters as a public defender, and I know better than most the nature of the challenges that the child protection agencies face. Frontline staff who are overwhelmed, underpaid, suffer from inadequate training and burnout. My observations are based upon 23 years of experience doing this work from several different perspectives, and this system is not working as it currently exists. The most challenging issues I routinely observed consist of the following. Delays in obtaining routine and specialized assessments, barriers to identifying appropriate reliable service providers, ensuring appropriate services are provided in the appropriate platform in person rather than virtual, insurance gaps and pitfalls, routine denials by insurers for medically prescribed services and treatments, including dental and basic orthodontic services, a lack of appeals of those routine denials, a lack of appropriate placements, especially for children who suffer from significant behavioral health challenges. Lack of creativity, collaboration without court intervention through court orders. Case managers often working in silos, underutilizing or simply not being aware of resources like the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation or the Georgia Justice Project. Placing the burden on children to participate in services and chastising them when they fail, characterizing them as difficult and uncooperative. Failure to ensure or provide oversight to enhance educational success and minimize poor outcomes for children as they navigate through the system and eventually reach the age of majority. An emphasis on policy rather than safety and protective factors. An inability to address the primary reasons children come into care, poverty, behavioral health challenges, and substance abuse. A lack of specialized case plans when reunification is the permanency goal. Decision-making protocols, follow-up and follow-through, and challenges with complex case assignment. And the fact that the only tool that judges have in their toolbox to help ameliorate these challenges is reasonable efforts. This list is by no means comprehensive. A colleague asked me many years ago, why do you care so much? I care because I watched a three-year-old child in my care try to walk across town to return to his mother's home. I care because when the state and the courts intervene in the most personal of cases, the children and families deserve our best. Juvenile court judges, whether they acknowledge it or not, are lawyers for each party. They're social workers, they're care coordinators, they're mediators, and they're cheerleaders. The decisions they make have a substantial impact on a family's life. I care because I believe you treat others as you want to be treated. Thank you. And you're tuned in to our, our 
Senate hearing on foster children and the courts held by the Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law. That's held by the Committee on the Judiciary. We just heard from Judge Belton. Um, she spoke about her long list of achievements and affiliations in child welfare. She has an extensive experience and um, personal experience being a former foster parent herself. Um, and she pointed to many areas of improvement that she identified. That's all. So that's right. She also talked about being a, um, a CASA advocate. That's a court-appointed special advocate. These are people who are trained to work with youth, mentor them, uh, children in the foster care system. They they get to know them very well, and they they provide this um, you know kind of unbiased um, look into how the care is being delivered, as well as offering this yeah intimate, care-driven support for. The child just showing up and being a, a positive influence in their lives. And the two judges who we heard from just before both both pointed to a lack of information that they said they were getting in order to make their decisions and th their concern about that. Um, this judge focused more on the issues that she saw within the system, um, saying they were there were issues with delays in obtaining assessments, barriers to identifying service providers, and even ensuring that the right platforms were used when services were actually provided. That's right. She had a, a actually a pretty big list. She talked about the lack of appeals of, uh, with routine denials, um, the lack of collaboration between different agencies, um, you know, case managers working in silos, not actually aware of the resources available to them in their state. There are many tragedies here because a lot of this does seem like it could be fixed fairly easily. Somebody just not being aware of the resources that are out there, that does seem to be hopeful in a, in a sense, but um, tragic in a way as well. Um, you know, so she pointed to, of course, the the way that the these child welfare welfare workers are over uh, uh, underpaid, overwhelmed, undertrained, burned out. All of these things lead to what she pointed to as a lack of creativity in collaboration, um, especially when it came to court orders, um, but also the lack of information would play into that too. That's right, and they're burnt out emotionally too. I mean, we heard um, on Wednesday this this is actually this hearing is actually part of a string of hearings, and in the previous hearing on Wednesday they had testimony from a woman who. Uh, who's, who, who was arrested and her two-year-old child was um, put into the foster care system and she wanted to have the child put under the care of her sister who was a nurse, also a certified foster care provider. Instead, the child was put under the care of the child's biological father and his girlfriend who has a history of child abuse as well as um, uh, methamphetamine abuse and the child was actually killed by this woman. Um, with, by, I guess she was hit in the back of the head. So tragic. Uh, we also heard uh, at the in previous hearing about an, a child who had been through the fo foster care system, survived and was thankfully doing well, but suffered so much trauma. It was almost incredible that she was doing that well. Um, this hearing will, uh, you know, this, this concludes our this concludes our coverage of this hearing, but you can, of course, go online and see more of this very important um, topic. Um, right, and we'll have more news for you after the break.
negotiating the release of hostages. Hamas is still holding over 200 people. Find out what Israeli officials are doing to negotiate. About half of 18 to 35-year-olds believe Hamas's terror attack on Israel was justified. It's in the U.S. We'll take a deep dive into what's causing this trend and the anti-Israel protests around the world. Former President Trump's tr legal battles, do they actually hurt his campaign or not? Find out what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now saying. Sundar Pichai, chief executive of Alphabet, testifies today in the once-in-a-generation antitrust fight over Google's dominance. What did he say? China vowing to boost defense ties with Washington as Beijing hosts its biggest military forum. Hear what China's number two military leader had to say. Russia's defense minister said Moscow is ready for talks, but that the West would have to give up its stance on Russia. We have the details on that and his warning of conflict in the Asia-Pacific. Israel is continuing ground operations in Gaza. This comes ahead of an expected full-scale ground invasion. As of now, operations are mostly focused in the northern Gaza area. We are assessing the situation continuously, progressing gradually in accordance with our operational plans. The offensive activity will expand and intensify in accordance with the phases of the war and its objectives. Israel says fighters killed dozens of terrorists in Gaza overnight. They barricaded themselves inside buildings and tried to kill forces that moved in their direction. Israeli troops also arrested dozens of Hamas terrorists overnight. The IDF says they've arrested 700 terrorists so far. And Fox News reports that an Israeli official has traveled to Qatar. That's for talks to release hostages held by Hamas. Negotiations stalled on Friday, leading to high tensions between the parties. A U.S. official reportedly attending the meeting, aiming to support the talks. Anti-Israel sentiment on the rise. Protests in Russia, Britain and even among young people in the U.S. Joining us live is NTD's Kelly Wright, host of America's Hope, who's been tracking this trend, examining the issue with experts and others deeply connected to the conflict. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Steph, good afternoon to you. It's a pleasure to join you this hour. Absolutely, and I wanna begin with over the weekend, protesters yelling slogans against Israelis rushed an airport in an ethnically Muslim region of Russia. We also saw in London 100,000 pro-Palestine protesters take to the streets. You've been speaking to counterterrorism experts. What do you think is causing this wave around the world? Well, one of the top foreign policy and counterterrorism experts known uh, throughout the world is Waleed Ferris. And uh, Waleed and I discussed this very topic last week. Uh, and the full uh, interview will air tonight on America's Hope at 10 p.m. Eastern. But Wally went on to tell me that what this is really a, a result of is not just the, the fact that Israel, with its right to defend itself, has conducted a relentless counterattack to make sure that it uh, takes out Hamas to remove any type of terrorist threat against them that would be akin to what happened on October 7th. But basically, Waleed was explaining that this is all induced and incited and funded by Iran. 
And as you know, Iran has definitely stated, at least its leaders, the Grand Ayatollah, has stated that it views Israel as the little Satan in the USA, as the great, great Satan. So Waleed has basically said what's happening on college campuses throughout America has happened as a result of Iran's systemic change in the way we educate our children in academia. He says uh, Hamas uh, and Hezbollah and Palestinian and Gaza, all of them have been able to actually put this kind of education out there to actually make people feel more anti-Jewish, more anti-Semitic. And as a result of that, uh, he believes that a lot of this is organized by Iran and then its larger uh, counterparts would be Russia and even China and North Korea and Syria. And pivoting specifically to the U.S., in a Harvard-Harris poll, just over half of 18 to 24-year-olds believe that the October 7th terrorist attack in Israel was justified. Almost half of those 25 to 35 think so as well. How did we get here? Well, we got here basically because of what Wally was talking about, the fact that the indoctrination or the miseducation and misinformation has been given to a lot of students on college campuses. And, and then you've, even if you go back to Charlottesville in our own country, when we saw Unite the Right actually marching uh, in protests in, in somewhat like a goose step uh, against uh, Jewish people saying the Jews united uh, will not be defeated, uh, or they will not be defeated, and that they uh, were anti-Semitic at that particular point in time. There's been a problem in this country, it's growing, and many rabbis that I've spoken to, and even security experts, have talked about the uptick, if you will, in anti-Semitism to the point that synagogues are now being protected uh, with a larger extent uh, of focusing on more security, not just for the, the synagogues themselves, but for the people who attend those congregations. Uh, so there's a problem going on in this country, and it's quite alarming to people who have followed history, going all the way back to Nazi Germany. Keep in mind, uh, German Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz likened Hamas to being equivalent to Nazis, and President Biden has likened Hamas to being like the ISIS terror group, which is a group that would uh, certainly behead even some of those people who are out on the streets protesting. Now, many in the pro-Palestine camp say that anti-Zionism is different from anti-Semitism. What are experts saying about this perspective? So that perspective comes uh, from the fact that a lot of people are using an argument to say that Israel is committing uh, racism and Zionism and trying to bring uh, the Palestinian people to extinction. Uh, many of the experts argue that that is not the case. They argue that Israel is trying to defend itself. And in the fog of war, actually in the counterattack that they're conducting, there will be uh, unfortunate deaths on all sides. Uh, that does not negate what's happening humanitarian-wise uh, in terms of what's happening in the Gaza. Bear in mind that many of these security experts that I've been speaking to talked about the fact that Israel, in, in, its, in its essence to defend itself, believing that it can be wiped out and annihilated if they allow Hamas and other terrorist groups to rise up and come against them the way they did on October 7th, that they would uh, be wiped off the face of the map, which is what uh, many of the uh, pro-Hamas uh, groups uh, would like to see done, wiping them from the river to the sea. Uh, in that regard, the, the argument between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, uh, yeah, you could, you could parse the two, but basically they're all coming down to the same scenario, and that is 
that many people are rising up to be anti-Jew, anti-Semitic, uh, therefore anti-Zionist and anti-Israel. And by the way, uh, there are many who are now anti-USA. Yeah, Kelly, keeping all of this in mind, Democratic Representative Pramila Jayapal said yesterday that President Biden may risk losing Arab and Muslim votes due to his support for Israel. And Biden's also pretty strong in his support for humanitarian aid to Gazans. So what role do you think the U.S.'s influence is playing in this war? Well, look, some members of Congress uh, can speak as they want. This is America. You have the right to free speech. Uh, I would argue against what uh, she stated. There are many Muslim Americans who don't like what they see happening, not only as it relates to the Palestinians, uh, innocent civilians being uh, caught in the in the quagmire, the quicksand of, of a war, but also they don't like what happened on the other side of the, of the issue, October 7th. They are chagrined, they are angry, and they are wondering what's going on. Uh, why is this happening? And then, of course, there are Christians and Jews, uh, Arab and otherwise, working in that area to bring peace. There are people on the ground doing that. It would be good if members of Congress were to watch what they're saying, hold their tongues, use more wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the situation, and to try to broker peace, which many people are trying to do, rather than pointing fingers at the President of the United States and at each other, by the way, uh, that doesn't get us anywhere. What really gets us somewhere is if we can have a diplomatic solution to this, uh, understanding that Israel will try to defend itself and make sure that Hamas never rears its ugly head again. And there we are right now with a, a nation trying to defend itself against uh, the tyranny and the insidious evil of a terrorist organization that doesn't mind beheading people uh, and has done that before even when the United States was conducting its war on terror. Perhaps the Congress member would go back and really study some history on all sides of the equation. All right, Kelly Wright, host of America's Hope, thank you so much. Thank you. And you can catch Kelly on America's Hope tonight, diving deeper into this issue with Walid Fares, a foreign policy analyst and the author of Iran, an imperialist republic and U.S. policy. That's at 10 p.m. Eastern Time here on NTD and on our website. And House Speaker Mike Johnson said on Sunday he expects floor action this week to advance a standalone funding bill to support Israel. This move comes despite President Biden pushing for an Israel-Ukraine combined aid package of over $100 billion. We believe that that is a pressing and urgent need. There, there are lots of things going on around the world uh, that we have to address, and we will. Uh, but right now, what's happening in Israel uh, takes the immediate attention, and I think we've got to separate that and get it through. I, I believe there'll be bipartisan support for that, and I'm going to push very hard for it. Biden has called on Congress to approve more than $100 billion in aid, but the bulk of the money would bolster Ukraine's defenses against Russia. The rest would be split among Israel, the Indo-Pacific region, and immigration enforcement along the U.S.-Mexico border. Johnson says bolstering support for Israel should top the national security agenda. This comes in the aftermath of the October 7th terror attack by Hamas terrorists from the Gaza Strip. Will House Speaker Mike Johnson succeed in his new role? We speak with Lauren Wil Lawrence Wilson, political reporter for the Epic Times, about the Republican House leader who's already been dubbed MAGA Mike Johnson by the likes of former President Trump. 
Lawrence Wilson, thank you for joining us. Some are saying the election of Mike Johnson is a huge win for Republicans right now. He's been called MAGA Mike by both by, by uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle. Just how conservative is the new speaker? Well, he's about as conservative as you can get on fiscal and social issues, which is to say he's a, a red-blooded Republican. Uh, but he's not really that much more conservative than the average uh, Republican in the House. The Heritage Foundation publishes a score for Republicans and Democrats as well based on their voting record. And Mike Johnson scored an 89 on that scale up to 100 and uh, the average or he scored a 90 i'm sorry the average is 89 for republicans so there are some who are more moderate there's some who are more conservative but he's right there kind of in the middle of the pack i think the real question is how much of a quote-unquote hardliner he'll be in pushing the Republican agenda. Will he take uh, extreme positions or will he be willing to moderate and compromise sometimes to get some progress? And Lawrence, do we have any indicators about which path he'll take? Well, yeah, a couple. First of all, just the speakership itself, it's a lot different than being a member because a member can afford to make protest votes, uh, take stances on things that, that are maybe impractical for the sake of their constituency. The speaker has to get things done, and that requires getting bills across the floor. Now, he's indicated his top priorities, and those are mostly fiscal and uh, foreign relations matters. He wants to get appropriations done with good spending cuts in there. Uh, he wants to get support for Israel, deal with the Ukraine matter. Uh, there's also Iran and China. On social issues, he's signaled that that's not his top priority at the moment. I think we can look for solid moves in terms of getting spending cuts across and dealing with the, the two wars happening right now, plus other foreign threats. Maybe social issues will come later. We're not sure how hard he's going to push them. Now, Lawrence, holding the Republican conference together proved too much for the former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Will that be a bit easier now that they've been behind Mike Johnson? I mean, he got unanimous support from Republicans. Yeah, I, I thought for a moment there they were going to break out into kumbaya on the House floor and all hold hands together. It was, it was amazing after the last three weeks of disunity. Now, one congressman told me that he said it looks like the the harder right elements of the Republican conference are going to give Johnson a little bit of leeway that they maybe were unwilling to give to McCarthy because they trust him more. Uh, but the honeymoon can only last so long. Those divisions are still there in the Republican conference. So time will tell. All right. And what about the this motion to vacate rule that led to McCarthy's demise? Um, what does Johnson say about it? Well, he said that that motion to vacate rule makes it a lot more difficult for the speaker to do his or her job. And that's obviously true, given what happened with McCarthy. He's also said that he's not afraid to challenge it. In other words, that uh, if somebody uh, pushes that, uh, he's not afraid to take up that fight. Now, Max Miller, congressman from Texas, is apparently making a move in that direction now. So we could see the speaker get behind that. And Lawrence, what's coming up in Congress that will put Speaker Johnson's leadership to the test? There's a lot coming down the pike. 
Yeah. Uh, separating Ukraine support from support for Israel and border uh, special appropriations, that's going to be the first big thing in which he's trying to do now. Uh, appropriations is another one, getting that all done by November 17th. What happens if there's a need for another continuing resolution? Will the hardliners go along with that or will they threaten the shutdown again? Unsure. Remember that Johnson is from a district with an Air Force base, an Army base, uh, National Guard training center. It's a very pro-military base. And he's a little more interested in supporting Ukraine than some Republicans are. If he relies on Democratic votes for that, that could be another test for him and keeping that caucus together. All right. Political reporter for the Epic Times, Lawrence Wilson, thank you very much. My pleasure. Up next, the United Auto Workers have reportedly reached a deal with the third and final carmaker, GM. It's a final resolution to the strikes. Is a, it's a final resolution to the strike finally on the horizon? And a look at former President Trump's legal battles. We bring you updates on two cases. One of them could prohibit Trump from being on the ballot in Colorado. More in a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. We're finally seeing a potential end to the big three auto strikes. According to media reports, carmaker general, carmaker general. Yeah, I know when you're like reading it for the first time, you're like, hmm. <laughs> Welcome back. We're finally seeing a potential end to the big three auto strikes. According to media reports, carmaker General Motors has reached a deal with United Auto Workers. GM is the third and final automaker to do so. Ford was the first. It reached an agreement on Wednesday. Stellantis did so on Saturday. These agreements are not final. Members of the automakers still have to ratify the agreements before they become final. The three agreements are reportedly very similar. They include a starting wage of over $28 an hour or about $56,000 a year. The strikes lasted six weeks and cost the big three automakers billions of dollars in lost production. It's a once-in-a-generation antitrust fight with U.S. government over, the, over Google's dominance. Sundar Pichai, CEO of Alphabet and its subsidiary Google, testified today. Here joining us to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, can you give us a brief overview of the case? Yeah, sure, Steph. Uh, basically, the U.S. is accusing Google of unlawfully stifling competition. Uh, the company is being accused of paying wireless carriers and smartphone makers billions of dollars here to make Google search the default or even the only option on products uh, which are used by millions of consumers. Um, Justice Department lawyers have previously said that uh, Google illegally maintained a monopoly for more than a decade and regulators are alleging Google has uh, rigged the market in its favor. Uh, some of its rivals, including DuckDuckGo, for example, have also complained about the situation. They say Google is not playing fairly uh, because 
removing Google as the default search engine on a device takes too many steps. So, you know, some people just don't bother doing that because it's too much trouble. Uh, the case, as you mentioned earlier, is widely seen as one of the biggest challenges uh, to tech industry power in 25 years. Uh, I mean, this is a legal showdown that could potentially reshape one of the Internet's most dominant platforms. What's Google's argument here, Don? Um, of course, Google denies uh, the accusations. Sundar Pichai today argued that uh, Google's dominance owes to people preferring Google because it's the best and not because it has behaved illegally in any way to gain and preserve a monopoly. Uh, Google also previously argued uh, as well that it faces a wide range of competition ranging from uh, other search engines like Microsoft's Bing, uh, DuckDuckGo, as I mentioned earlier, um, to websites like Amazon and Yelp as well. Google's lawyers have also said uh, before that users today have more search options and more ways to access information online than ever before. Um, another stance here by Google is that consumers can simply delete the Google app uh, from their devices or simply uh, go to Microsoft's Bing search engine or Yahoo or uh, DuckDuckGo um, as an alternative search engine. And that they're saying consumers stick with Google because they like the answers uh, that the search engine gives them. And what's at stake here for the search giant, Don? So, you know, what's at stake is potentially the way Google distributes its search engine to users. Uh, the judge may potentially decide to order Google to stop practices that uh, have been found to be illegal, or he may order Google to sell assets. Um, you know, it could also lead to fewer users, uh, lower profits. The government said in its lawsuit that the court could actually even break up the company as a solution. But, you know, this would be an extreme outcome. All right. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis still trailing far behind former President Trump in the polls. DeSantis told NBC Trump's legal battles help the former president and his campaign. Had Alvin Bragg not politicized this back in April, I think the probably the primary would be looking different. I mean, I think that that uh, gave uh, gave the former president more support. I think people felt uh, that he was treating, being treated unfairly, which he was in that circumstance. Trump is facing legal battles in multiple states. However, polls indicate that those issues actually help him gain popularity. Also last week, only Jewish Republican in Florida's state legislature switched his endorsement from DeSantis to Trump. He said the governor hasn't done enough to counter neo-Nazi harassment in Florida. This comes as yet another trial surrounding Trump beginning today in Colorado. The court will determine whether Trump is disqualified from the state's ballot in the 2024 election. That's over his purported role in the January 6th riots. A rarely used Civil War era provision of the Constitution bars people who have engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding federal office. Trump faces similar lawsuits in Michigan and Minnesota, but the Colorado case is the first to go to trial. And in another Trump case, the former president is expected to testify next week. That's in the civil fraud case in New York. The judge has already ruled Trump liable for fraud. He also ordered the dis dissolution of his Trump organization. The trial now deals with how much Trump has to pay in damages. The trial is expected to last through December. 
The Department of Defense is aiming to build a new nuclear weapon. The DOD says it's looking for congressional approval and funding to pursue a modern variant of the B-61 nuclear gravity bomb. The military said the B-61-13 is a response to a rapidly changing geopolitical landscape, especially amid the renewed threat of nuclear war. The B-61-13 would be deliverable by modern aircraft. The weapon is intended to strengthen the U.S. nuclear deterrent. The program is also meant to assure allies that the U.S. is a reliable partner. The DOD says the bomb would give the president additional options against military targets. The munition would replace current nuclear stocks and have a similar yield. A Florida congressman is voicing concerns about a group of Chinese immigrants that arrived in the Florida Keys. Customs and Border Protection detained 17 Chinese illegal immigrants on Florida's Key Largo last week. The group included three Ecuadorians who were taken into custody as well. Congressman Carlos Jimenez told Fox News that he wants CBP to provide more information on the detainees. The House Republican represents Florida's 28th district, which includes Key Largo. He said the arrivals should worry every American. The congressman is also on the Homeland Security and China Select Committees. He told Fox that he wasn't shocked by the arrivals, considering the Biden administration's border policies. His fellow Republicans have also raised concerns about other adversaries slipping into the country. And next, we turn to the account of one woman's experience of life under Chinese dictator Mao Zedong and his infamous cultural revolution. Xi Van Fleet fled to America to find freedom, and now she's sounding the alarm over what she sees as fractures in this society that could split the country in all too familiar ways. Her new book, Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning, is available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats starting tomorrow. But first, we have a sneak peek. Shi Van Fleet, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. Your book is titled Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning. So what's your warning to America, and why now? Yeah, the warning is that we are in the midst of a Marxist revolution. We did not invite it. The war was raged on us. I know it because I've been to through one 50 years ago, and I'm going through one right now with millions of Americans. And so what specific examples do you have of the parallels that you've drawn between your experience of Mao's cultural revolution and America today? Read the book. But in general, I can say the identical uh, identity politics, which was designed to divide us and make us enemy of each other, cancel culture, and uh, um, crush of uh, free speech, and also weaponize youth by indoctrination. All this I've been through, and all this the hallmark of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and it is also the hallmarks of this American culture revolution. And you've pointed to critical race theory as um, something of concern in, in the midst of all of this. Um, what do you think people can do to address concerns that they may, might have uh, while maintaining their freedom? As you've said, there is quite a bit of pushback against people who oppose critical race theory. Yeah, what we're really fighting is our freedom. Um, so what they can do, I think the first thing 
they have to understand what we're dealing with. The nature of woke or wokeism, only when you understand, you can fight back. And how to fight back? Get involved and take action. And I talked to some people who uh, read the advanced copy and they told me if anything they learned from this book is that they have to take action. When I heard that, I said, if I can uh, achieve that, this book will be a huge success. It's not about just reading it. It's really about understanding and taking action. And on that point, Xi, you've said that you believe the Cultural Revolution, Mao's Cultural Revolution, shares the same goal as the political and um, climate in the U.S. today and the trends that you're seeing. Yeah. What do you think that people can, what are potential consequences do you anticipate um, if this goes unchecked? Yes, the goal is the same. It's power. It's the elite. Uh, taking power. In the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution, it was Mao who wanted to take absolute power. And for that, he was willing to destroy the whole country. And the same is happening in America. The elite want to take power and take our freedom away. And for that, they are willing to destroy this great country. And so what do, message do you have for people who may be skeptical about the message that you have and the warning that you have? Uh, and uh, okay, so there are people who would not uh, believe what I say. And for those people, there's nothing more I can say to you because I'm not telling you something that I learned uh, from books or did some research. This is my experience. This is history. And if you refuse to learn it, there's nothing more I can say to you. But I want people to know what I'm saying is lived experience using the left terminology. And uh, I'm telling you, if you want to find it out yourself, by then it might be too late. And she, you fled communism to fr the free America. What are some of the key values and principles that you believe make America um, special and worth preserving? Exceptionalist, yes. American is a very, very exception, uh, exceptional place. And for one thing, I would say, the, uh, this country is built on the belief that our freedom is granted by our creator. This is alien, alien to the uh, Chinese civilization, alien to many, many uh, other uh, civilizations and cultures. This is unique to America, and that is the most precious gift that we have. And that's our, that was the foundation of our freedom. And the government, its sole uh, responsibility is to ensure that our rights were uh, protected. And that's what we're fighting for, fighting for our freedom. Xi Van Fleet, thank you so much author of Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning, out on October 31st. Hope Tomorrow. That's right. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Still to come, a Washington state senator saved from a jail sentence in Hong Kong. Why he was acquitted of gun charges and what he said about the case. And it's been one year since the Halloween crush in South Korea that killed over 150 young people. Find out how Koreans are remembering those killed and planning for the future.
Welcome back. And now for some top news from around the world. Pro-Palestine rioters storming an airport in Russia. The airport in the Republic of Dagestan had to close on Sunday after a group of protesters stormed the runway. They were looking for an Israeli flight. Their goal was to find passengers in a flight that arrives from Tel Aviv. They caused some damage in Customs Zone, Passport Control Area and other areas. They also broke through the fences surrounding the runways. The Biden administration commented on the incident, saying it condemns the anti-Semitic protests. A Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman said the incident was the result of a provocation orchestrated from outside Russia, with Ukraine playing a direct and key role. She referred to online resources linked to a former Russian lawmaker. Kiev has denied any connection to the unrest. At the same time, Russians remembered the victims of political oppression on Sunday. People laid flowers in front of the Federal Security Service, former KGB headquarters in Moscow. Natan Lazarevich Fruman, store manager, 48 years old, executed in 1938. Kalmal Fritz Germanovich, born in 1895, director of the Stalingrad Oil Depot, accused of counter-revolutionary activity and espionage, executed in 1937. The action came ahead of a Remembrance Day of the victims of political repressions. It's marked annually on October 30th. The event has been organized by human rights group Memorial since 2007. The group was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. And in Ukraine, people held a race remembering the people who died in the war against Russia. Around 2,000 Ukrainians participated in the one-kilometer race. Many of our comrades won't ever be alive again, and I won't be able to shake their hands or sit down with them. But they remain inside here, and we must live with this, and we need to carry their cross just as we do our own. This is a token of gratitude to everyone who defends and has defended our country. I believe it shows that we are not indifferent to what is happening right now. A group of veterans on wheelchairs and crutches started the race. Each runner chose one person to whom they dedicated their run. The organizers of the run called it the world's longest marathon, saying no race has lasted as long as Ukraine's fight for freedom. Meanwhile, the European Union will financially support countries in Eastern Europe. The bloc plans on giving over $6 billion to countries in the Western Balkans to pursue reforms. What we aim to do together is to double your economy within the next decade. And this is the reason why we present the new growth plan for the Western Balkans. Von der Leyen said the EU's new growth plan for the region includes the opening of its common market to the Western Balkan countries. That's in areas such as free movement of goods and services, transport and energy. The union is also urging the countries to open a common regional market and pursue necessary reforms. In Kazakhstan, officials say at least 45 miners were killed in a fire at a coal mine over the weekend. Rescue crews are still searching for one missing person. More than 200 people were reportedly inside the mine when a methane, methane explosion started the fire. A criminal investigation is now underway. 
Kazakhstan's president declared a national day of mourning and flags were flown at half-mast yesterday. And in Spain, police seized over 1,500 pounds of cocaine. The drugs were hidden among scrap metal in a truck from Costa Rica. Footage shows officers dismantling the truck and finding blue packs inside an aluminum container. Police said eight people were arrested. And turning to China, where a key defense forum is underway in the country's capital. China's number two military official stressed the need to develop military ties with the U.S., but at the same time, he accused, quote, some countries of interfering in China's internal affairs. Zhang Youxia made the remarks at the Shangshan Forum, China's biggest annual military diplomacy event. The gathering is being held days after Beijing removed its former defense minister, Li Shangfu, without naming a replacement. The U.S. Defense Department sent a delegation to the forum. Beijing and Washington have had no high-level military-to-military communications since March. That's when China appointed Li, the man sanctioned by Washington for overseeing weapon purchases from Russia. Also speaking at the Xiangshan Forum, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. He said Moscow is ready for talks if the West abandons the idea of defeating Russia. Specifically, he said Russia would discuss the settlement of the Ukraine and further coexistence with the West, but emphasized that these talks would only happen under certain conditions. Shogu also accused the West of working to expand the war on Ukraine to Asia-Pacific by its military presence there. Russia maintains that the West similarly provoked the war in Ukraine and is trying to undermine Russia's security. China has refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and has vowed to deepen economic and military cooperation with Moscow. Staying in Beijing, despite dangerously high levels of smog, some 30,000 runners took part in a marathon in the city without wearing masks. According to a Swiss air quality tech firm, Beijing was ranked as the second most populated major city in the world on Sunday. This smoggy condition brings back memories of a decade ago when marathon goers had to wear masks for protection. Chinese authorities say the smog will blanket parts of the country for the next few days before dissipating later this week. For the first time, the U.S. has started buying Japanese seafood to supply its military in the country. That's in a bid to offset China's import ban after Japan's Fukushima water release in August. In announcing the initiative, U.S. Ambassador to Japan Rahm Emanuel said it would begin with the purchases of scallops, scallops before expanding to all types of Japanese seafood. China will continue its economic coercion, but the best way we have proven in all the instances to kind of wear out China's economic coercion is come to the aid and assistance of the targeted country or industry. So this is one step. Emmanuel said the purchases would feed soldiers and be sold in shops and restaurants on military bases. He said the U.S. military had not previously purchased local seafood in Japan. Beijing was once the biggest buyer of Japanese seafood globally. The regime says its import ban is due to food safety fears. But the U.N. The un the UN nuclear watchdog has vouched for the safety of Japan's water release. 
A Washington state lawmaker was acquitted by a Hong Kong court on Monday of illegally possessing a firearm. Washington State Senator Jeff Wilson was arrested on October 21st after he arrived at the Hong Kong airport with a pistol in his carry-on luggage. And his acquittal, the magistrate fined Wilson over $250 and gave him a two-year good behavior order and said the court was inclined to believe that the, the Republican did not deliberately break the law. In a statement on his website, Wilson called it an honest mistake. He said he only discovered the gun in his briefcase mid-flight from San Francisco and that airport security in Portland had failed to detect it. By carrying a firearm without a license, Wilson could have faced a fine of up to nearly $13,000 and a maximum of 14 years in prison. Chinese property giant Evergrande has been granted one last chance. Today, a hearing to wind up the company was adjourned until December 4th. A Hong Kong judge ruled that this was the company's final opportunity to come up with a restructuring plan. If it fails, Evergrande will probably face liquidation. Here's more. The giant developer has over $300 billion in liabilities and defaulted on its offshore debt in 2021. It's become a symbol of a crisis that has engulfed China's real estate sector, which accounts for about a quarter of the country's economy. That leaves investors around the world worried what might happen if giant companies like Evergrande face a chaotic collapse. Now the court says the developer has to come up with a revised restructuring plan before the December hearing. Its previous plan was thrown into doubt last month after news that the firm's founder was under investigation for criminal activities. Evergrande has also been barred from issuing new debt due to a probe into its flagship property unit. One lawyer for a major group of creditors said they supported the court adjournment, saying they would still prefer a restructuring to liquidation. Evergrande did not respond to a request for comment. It's been one year since the deadly Halloween crash in South Korea. The country held a memorial ceremony to mark the day. The tragedy left more than 150 people dead and hundreds injured. Let's zoom in. A year after 159 Halloween revelers were killed in a crowd crash in South Korea, the capital's nightlife districts of Itaewon was quiet. Halloween decorations were replaced with posters and flowers in the alleys that once hosted lively festivities. Last year's crowd surge in Itaewon, resulting in the tragic alley crush, was attributed to insufficient preparation and crowd control, with early calls for help going unanswered. Most victims were in their 20s and 30s. Some residents and visitors came to Itaewon to pay their respect to the victims. I've been emotionally devastated for the past year over the young friends who tragically lost their lives here. I've come here also to show the children the impact of such a tragedy and to mourn those individuals. That's why I'm here. Gatherings have not been banned in Itaewon over Halloween this year. However, the authorities conducted crowd control drills using an AI-backed networks of cameras. Last year's tragedy led to a police investigation revealing negligence and a poor response by authorities. Families of victims call for the special legislation of the bill to find out the truth behind the tragedy. While 23 officials were referred for prosecution, no senior government officials resigned or were removed over the disaster. A breaking update on the stabbing of a young Palestinian boy in Chicago. 
The landlord, accused of killing the boy, is pleading not guilty in court this morning. The 71-year-old landlord was indicted last week. He's accused of fatally stabbing a six-year-old Palestinian boy, also of critically hurting the mother in an alleged hate crime. Allegations say the landlord attacked the two because of their religion and nationality. The Justice Department and the FBI are also looking at the hate crime charges. Coming up, fans pay tribute to actor Matthew Perry at his Los Angeles home. The Friends star died over the weekend in an apparent drowning. And some tall, some tall trees, soon to be easier to visit. Tasmania is home to the tallest trees in the Southern Hemisphere. Hear about the efforts to protect them here on NTD News Today. Thank you for staying with us. Fans paid tribute to actor Matthew Perry on Sunday, laying flowers at his Los Angeles home. The Friends star died over the weekend in an apparent drowning. There's a lot of uh, people with addiction and he helped a lot of people. So that to me is, he gave back to his community, he gave back to people. My husband actually found out about it. So then he, he couldn't believe it. So we were all shocked. We were hoping it was um, not true. We're still in disbelief. Perry was only 54. He was born in Massachusetts and raised in Canada. The actor struggled with alcohol and drug addiction for much of his life and career. Perry was found dead in a hot tub at his L.A. home Saturday afternoon. The actor played Chandler Bing for 10 seasons on the hit TV series Friends, which ran from 1994 to 2004. 2004. Some more sad news over the weekend. Hockey player Adam Johnson died following a freak accident on the ice. It happened during an English Hockey League game. Johnson's team, the Nottingham Panthers, faced off against the Sheffield Steelers. Johnson suffered a major neck injury after colliding with another player in the second period in the game. According to the Washington Post, he was cut by a skate blade. In a statement, the Nottingham Panthers said they are truly devastated by Johnson's death. During his career, the Minnesota native made it to the National Hockey League, where he played for the Pittsburgh Penguins for two years. He also spent time in the American Hockey League. Johnson was 29 years old. Besides livening up bland foods, chili peppers have many notable advantages. On this episode of Strong Mind and Body, we'll look at the health benefits of peppers. Here's Gina Marie. Peppers are fruits of an array of types and flavors, from sweet or pungent to fiery hot. But they all offer a wealth of essential nutrients. Bells come in a variety of colors, green, yellow, orange, red, and purple. Chili peppers are renowned for their mild to fiery hot spiciness. All are rich in dietary fiber, vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. Numerous studies have shown the health benefits of adding peppers into your diet. Let's look at seven notable benefits, starting with eye health. Number one, protect the eyes. Peppers are rich in vitamin A and compounds such as beta-carotene and lutein. These vitamins and phytonutrients protect the eyes from macular degeneration. They also help to maintain good retinal health by preventing oxidative damage. Number two, prevent cancer. 
Bell peppers contain beta-carotene and vitamin C, which can inhibit carcinogenic substances. Research from South Korea suggests that postmenopausal women who consume bell peppers may have a lower risk of developing breast cancer. Number 3. Delay Aging Bell peppers are abundant in vitamin C. This is a potent antioxidant that can counteract excessive free radicals and delay aging. Number 4. Protect the Heart The compound capsaicin found in chili peppers is associated with heart protection, weight management and anti-tumor effects. Number 5. Boost Immunity Bell peppers are rich in vitamin C which supports the immune system. Number 6. Help Weight Loss as peppers are low in calories and rich in dietary fiber, they increase satiety and reduce food intake. And number seven, relieve constipation. As a rich source of dietary fiber, bell peppers are beneficial for digestive health. Consuming bell peppers can stimulate gastrointestinal motility and metabolism. This alleviates constipation and maintains intestinal health. Thank you for staying with us. Tasmania is famous for its breathtaking mountains and pristine coastlines, but it's also where the tallest flowering trees in the world grow. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on calls to make these natural marvels more accessible to the public. Tasmania's southern forests are home to eucalyptus regnans. The tree species is also known as mountain ash or swamp gum. I looked up at this tree and it just disappeared into the fog, and I just couldn't believe a tree could be so tall and so big. In fact, they're the tallest in the Southern Hemisphere. This one is nicknamed Gandalf's Staff, after the famous fictional wizard. Centurion is the tallest of the trees. If we allowed people, locals and visitors alike, to come and see these trees in a respectful, low-impact and sustainable way, we could certainly elevate our cultural understanding of these trees. But now their lives are threatened. Bushfires in 2019 destroyed 16 of Tasmania's 25 tallest trees. But tourism could help bring attention to the species. So there's definitely potential for Tasmania to up its game in regards to sharing these forests with the world. There's things like observation decks, navigation signs that really can make the difference. The local government says it's open to doing more. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Wow, that centurion tree is actually one of the tallest trees in the world. Oh, really? Yeah, it's taller than Big Ben. That is very tall. <laughs> I know the oldest tree is 4,800 years old. What? Yeah, it's a pine tree somewhere in California. We don't know exactly where. Its location's being kept a secret. That's incredible. Should we go look for it? Okay. <laughs> and we're out. <laughs> That's right. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.